No matter your skill level, age, or sport, mental blocks are something many athletes come face to face with that challenges their resolve. What's the difference in the athletes who come out the other side stronger and the ones who quit? Training and taking care of your brain. Welcome to the Sports Psychology Of. I'm Gabe Zellico. Today, we're breaking down the sports psychology of mental blocks. In this episode, you'll learn about how mental blocks form, proactive ways to keep them from forming in the first place, and mental skills to knock them down should they arise. Joining me today is former national gymnastics champion, Tiffany Wilding-White. Tiffany now works as a mental performance coach, workshop leader, speaker, and author. Tiffany competed in Division I gymnastics at Cornell University and earned her master's in sports psychology at Ithaca College. As owner of Mind Over Motion, she has trained thousands of athletes to achieve a winning mindset on and off the field. She works with Olympic, professional, college, and amateur athletes, as well as performers and coaches. She's the author of the book, Golfing With Your Eyes Closed, and you can find out more about her at mindovermotion.com. Before we get to the conversation, head to my website, zelicoperformance.com, or click the link in the description if you're interested in your own sports psychology coach. You can schedule a free call with me where we'll discuss your goals, obstacles to success, and if we're a good fit to move forward. Enjoy. So, Tiffany, how did you get into this world of sports psychology? I actually grew up as a gymnast and went on to become a national champion. So I knew firsthand the rigors of elite performance and the benefits of mental training. Uh, and then I competed at Division One at Cornell University and then actually earned a master's degree at Ithaca College in sports psychology. And then I did a uh, I, I did a stint at IMG Academies um, in their mental conditioning department and opened my own business after that. And I've been doing it for over 20 years, helping athletes achieve a winning mindset. So in your gymnastics career, were you kind of doing your own sports psychology without the science and structure to it? Or were you actually doing maybe your coaches were helping you understand it or you were reading some literature or was it just kind of a free for all? I'm going to do what works for me. Yeah, that's a great question. I'd say it was sort of two pronged. Uh, our coaches were not specifically doing mental training with us. I think we had one special guest come in one day and do visualization where we all lay on the floor. And at that point sort of thought it was a little bit outlandish. It wasn't something that was familiar to us. And then my dad was actually the other person who influenced me in the mental game. He had been a, di a diver, a springboard diver when he was in college. And he suggested that I might look at the balance beam and say to myself, I own this beam. And that was the only bit of mental training, real coaching that I had um, specifically. So when I found that it was in fact a field of study that I could help others, that I could learn and then help others, I went right for it. And what did that do for you that I own this beam or what would you look back on that mental skill usage and with all the training you have now, how can you kind of reevaluate that? Right. So I didn't even realize it at the time, but that then became my mental mantra, which is a phrase I use frequently with athletes now in terms of positive self-talk, where you might choose a key phrase or a golfer might have a swing shot. 
um, or a pre-race thought, call it what you will. It's, it's a mental mantra. It's a phrase that keeps you motivated, keeps you positive, helps you block out the negative thoughts, mm-hmm. the mistakes, the could have, the could have, should have, the would have, and really focus on something that makes you feel confident. So that owning the beam really became that confident mental mantra for me that I now use as an example for athletes I work with. Well said. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to pick favorites out of mental skills, but the mantra has always been my favorite. That was, and it started because that was what empowered me the most when I was trying out all this stuff, when I learned it. And then when I was playing college hockey, that, that mantra was just such a great, efficient way to lock in my focus and confidence. Do you remember what your mantra was? I absolutely do. I have no future. I have no past, just the present, and I'm going to make it last. So I did not make that up. I totally stole that from a sports psychologist and goalie coach who works with a lot of NHL goalies. And that's the beauty of this stuff. You can totally copy things. But then as I went through my college career, I changed the mantra to based on what I needed, what I needed to feel confident. So that's uh, that's definitely going to be one of the skills that we are going to get to today in this conversation. Let's set the scene, though. We're talking mental blocks. And maybe before we kind of define what we're talking about, do you have experience of kind of going through a mental block like this in gymnastics? So personally, I had a couple of um, mental blocks, and then I work with athletes who have had mental blocks. Personally, it was uh, on a single skill. It wasn't a particularly difficult skill. It was a skill they don't even do anymore. Um, it was on uneven bars, and and now the bars are much wider. So it was something that's not done now. Um, and it was a silly thing to to get a mental block on, but I always pictured myself knocking my feet against the bar when I did it. So. I had to do a lot of visualization again, without training, just sort of figured it out. It was something I could do when I was bored in class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could picture myself doing gymnastics. Uh, and then also coming back from what turned out to be a career ending injury for me. Um, I did a lot of visualization and positive thinking to try to overcome the fear of getting back to gymnastics and and not hurting myself again. Mm-hmm. So that was a big point where I felt like I really understood where a mental block can just make you freeze on something that you've done previously with a lot of confidence. Yeah. I mean, that must've been so difficult, but it's at least letting you have that experiential knowledge in addition to knowing the science and psychology behind the mental block. So I think listeners are going to get a lot out of this one. Let's start off with kind of talking about what is this mental block specifically? How would you describe this? Because we can obviously go a lot of different routes in describing what this is, but do you have maybe a, a kind of a quick definition that we can use for this episode? I would say a mental block is when an athlete faces a skill on which they were previously confident and now they are really hesitant or uh, driven by fear, really. And that fear can be fear of failure, fear of success, fear of injury, fear of the unknown. You know, we could break each of those down in its own episode. But a lot of times athletes aren't able to identify really what is it specifically they are afraid of. Um, and it might not even feel like fear. So we sort of say it's a lack of confidence. And then that confidence becomes a big all encompassing term. And we can go a lot of directions with that. But building confidence, I think is the important part is that building confidence is a verb. Confidence is not something that we have or that we own. It is a verb that we have to actively cultivate. And I think the same is true about a mental block. We think of it as a, a noun that really gets in our way when really it's something that we can actively prevent and then actively treat, treat, fix, overcome. 
how the way you say this is like the mental block is like um it's almost like a mindset where it's not just something that's happening it's something that you are creating within the way the way that you are thinking about things and evaluating your situation and the way we talk about that I like that you talked about fear a lot because I look at fear as in line with self-doubt and that is on the opposite side of the spectrum of confidence. So I think it's all interrelated very closely, but um, talk more about this mindset. What Talk more about this maybe fearful mindset that creates a mental block. So I think when we're when we're thinking about fear of failure, that's kind of an obvious one, right? We None of us really wants to be embarrassed. Nobody wants to feel shame. Nobody wants to feel that disappointment. So that motivation to avoid failure is, is pretty understandable. Fear of success is a harder one sometimes to get our heads around because that comes when athletes maybe don't want to achieve success because it requires them to achieve more success. It sort of puts more pressure on them to achieve the next level. And that can be overwhelming. Um, fear of injury, obviously, you know, coming back from an injury or seeing someone else get injured or just imagining the potential behind, you know, you certainly know it in hockey, right? That injuries there are pretty severe. Uh, gymnastics has pretty crazy injuries sometimes. But even the overuse injuries that come from running or golf or baseball, right? Those those can be really dramatic. So there is fear around that. There's a whole lot of fear around the unknown. What's going to happen if we make this tournament? If we don't make this tournament, what's my coach going to say? What what are my parents going to say? What are my fans going to say? So there is a whole lot around fear, and I think fear then drives the behaviors that diminish performance. Before we get to the behaviors that diminish performance, I I think it's worth noting that those fears, everybody has these fears. Every single athlete experiences those to some degree, but where I often talk about mental obstacles and I want to differentiate those from mental blocks, the mental obstacle is something that isn't as intense as a mental block. It's something that everyone experiences at some point and it's not as debilitating as a mental block and it's something that you still have confidence and belief that you can overcome and in even simpler terms a mental obstacle is easier to get around than a mental block so i think it's just worth noting that sometimes it a mental obstacle might sound like a mental block and vice versa but it really comes down to are you is the anxiety so bad that you don't even want to attempt a certain skill or is it just you're, you're having some doubt and you're not performing up to your potential like a mental obstacle? But let's go back to those behaviors. So out of all of these these mindsets that stem from the fear of all these factors that you mentioned, what behaviors are produced as a result of those fears? We see a lot of inconsistency in play. We see a lot less risk taking, right? So someone might pass rather than take the shot. Uh, someone might not put in a harder level skill. They might just do a full instead of a double full. Um, they might downgrade the routine. Uh, the places where you used to see real joy in sport, you know, it's just not as much fun, right? You're coming home from practice crying. You're dreading going to the game. You're not enjoying the interactions with your teammates. Is this over... Uh, overarching feeling of real disappointment in yourself, disappointment in in the sport, and lack of engagement. Um, so it doesn't have to be a specific skill that you have a mental block on. It can be, but it can just be very the the symptoms of it is sort of you're feeling that disengagement, you're seeing that lack of consistency, 
you might call it anxiety, you might call it self-doubt. Yes. It sounds like with the mental block, as opposed to the obstacle, the mental block incurs a lot of avoidance behaviors where there's, they're not even, people are just scared to try something. And that leads to avoiding the, the attempt of, and obviously this avoidance is going, is not representing a problem solving mindset. It's an avoidance mindset. And I don't see this oftentimes being the solution unless there, there is a burnout thing kind of going on, in which case avoidance might be actually the remedy for it. But I, I don't know. I feel like burnout is not necessarily a cause for a mental block. Is that, what do you think about that? I would say I agree with that, Gabe. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't see a correlation there. Usually I mean, we're kind of splitting hairs, whether we're talking block or obstacle or uh, slump or burnout right there. They are different sort of fingers of the same hand. Um, but I wouldn't say that necessarily uh, a block would lead to burnout or a burnout is considered a block. I, I actually like to think of a mental block instead of, I think visually we often think of it as, as a block in front of us, as a wall in front of us. I like to visually think of it as a deep groove in our brain. And when we form those deep grooves, it's really easy to follow that path, to just go right down that path without even thinking. That's what muscle memory is. And in the best sense, when we have visualized and we've used positive thinking, we run down those paths easily and we tumble down them and we, we block shots and we do all the things as athletes without thinking. When you're in this deep groove of a mental block, you're doing that without thinking. You're stuck in that groove. And so what we need to think of that as instead of a block in front of us that we really have no way around is a groove that we can just build a new groove. And when we build those new neural pathways, we're out of that well-trodden path and into a new path that will eventually be well-trodden and much smoother. Couldn't agree more. What would you say to the athletes who are trying to build that new groove, that path in their brain, but they're kind of giving up early on because they're not seeing the results right away? Okay. Three things. One, it takes time to build a new trail. Two, start really small. So we're talking with changing your language. Instead of saying, I have a mental block, say, I'm building a new path, right? Immediately move that language to something more positive, more hopeful, more confidence giving. Um, and three, really jump in on what's working. What are you succeeding with? What is fun about this sport? And if that means backing off to a certain level that is not creating fear, go with that. And then you've kind of bitten off a few bite-sized chunks that will allow you to get closer to letting that new groove start to form. Those are all excellent pieces of advice that I think fall under the umbrella of improving self-talk and the quality of your self-talk, because there's no doubt that somebody experiencing something like a mental block is having really unhelpful self-talk and they're, and it's making the problem worse. Whereas changing the perspective, which is changing your evaluation of everything that's going on in your life and your evaluation of the future, it's going to come down to your self-talk and how you're speaking to yourself and and how you describe the narrative. So those were so many great tools. And then this is something that you can have more robust conversations about as the athlete with their coach, their sports psychologist, their parent, a teammate. And then those conversations can be streamlined into a mantra that is land just lands on a few words or a phrase that can put you in that mindset right away. Now, it might not be immediately like zero to 100, I feel on top of the world. But again, I think it's more about you're on the right trajectory and you're, you're building that groove, you're building that path. 
Absolutely. And I, I think of that mental mantra, like a shield, right? When you're holding up your mental mantra, things can't get in as easily. Negative thoughts can't get in as easily. So it's not a hundred percent foolproof, right? There are thoughts that come through and we just sort of whack them away with that mental mantra, that positive thought. I think like whack-a-mole, you know, the game where you're just constantly knocking at those pop-up moles, right? That your hammer is your positive thought, your mental mantra. And eventually those moles give up and go away and you are left with a positive, confident new path in your brain. I'm so sticking with this analogy right now because why I love that analogy of whack-a-mole is people have this misconception that they only need to say their mantra at the beginning of a game, uh, in the middle, when they need some recovering of their mental game and when maybe one other time. Whereas that is just so not the case. You're going to be constantly whacking away at these unhelpful thoughts and that verb, that action of whacking away is replacing the mole with something, with a great mantra, something effective with your self-talk. And I mean, I remember my first college game, again, going back to that mantra, I said this thing to myself, I I can't, the ballpark is 50 to 100 times. It's because I constantly, I mean, that's how the brain works, right? We yep. can't expect the brain to be, you can't expect to have the brain under wraps just by doing something a few times throughout an hour because the brain is going to be becoming distracted every minute if you're lucky, right? So that's a really good tip on incorporating a certain mantra in order to keep building and refining that new groove in your brain to get around a mental block, that it's something that's going to take constant work, not only in a certain day in a practice or a game, but over time with consistency. Yeah, I think that's so true, Gabe. And and I, I think the research says we have about a thousand words per minute in our minds. So if you imagine that your mental mantra takes up, I don't know, eight words, and you've got... <laughs> 992 left, those could be negative. Those could be distractions. Those could be past thoughts. Those could be future thoughts. Those could be things about you that you can't control. Whoa, stop. Put your shield up. Use your mental mantra again and again and again and again and again. And then there's no room for anything else. What about athletes being aware of a mental block forming before it becomes debilitating and more difficult to manage? So this is kind of coming at it from a proactive approach of how can I maybe catch this before it gets out of control? Um, is this, I mean, this could just be a mental obstacle. That's like, man, I've been experiencing a lot of self-doubt lately. Uh, is there a way an athlete can understand if that might is the beginning of something really intense that they need to get on this right now? Or is it just something that they don't need to stress that much over? This is a normal thing that athletes experience. I think both are true. It is a normal thing that athletes experience and we are humans. And so we do come up and we come down in our performance. I don't think it's realistic to expect any athlete to always 100% of the time play at their top level. We've never seen an athlete like that, right? Because we're humans, we're not robots. So expecting that there will be um, trenches and highlights, right? That So this is normal. You have self-doubt, you have some fear, Nobody's confident 100% of the time, even David Beckham, right? There is plenty of self-doubt. Look at Simone Biles, right? The best athlete, the best gymnast in the world. She pulls out of the Olympics because she wasn't confident. That's what happened. You call it the twisties, you call it mental health, whatever. She wasn't confident in that moment. And so I think there's no, I wouldn't say that there's necessarily an exact route to prevent that, but I think developing that self-awareness is really key. And we hear that term thrown around a lot now, mindfulness. 
And some of us as athletes can be a little bit resistant to that because it sounds a little woohoo. But if you replace mindful with observant or considerate or careful, those are things that we can be as athletes. Those are things that we can be as humans who are really trying to craft our performance. And so if we're looking at how do we prevent making a deep groove in the wrong direction, then we're talking about really being observant of our thoughts, noticing, am I feeling a lot of self-doubt right now? Am I feeling a lot of confidence right now? Am I feeling fatigued right now? Just noticing. We're not judging it. We're just noticing it. So taking those two minutes a day, maybe in the evening or in the morning or when you're stretching or when you're in the shower or when you're uh, warming up to just do a little self-check. How is this going for me? What's working well? Maybe you have a journal you keep it in. Maybe you make a note in your phone. Um, I think I, I like to say ink it. Don't just think it. Oh, right? so I love observe that. <laughs> and write it down. And, uh, and they're, yeah. Why just, I love that phrase, ink it, don't think it is because there is just so much science to show how much more impactful it is in a problem solving way to write about something because you're putting language to it and you're, you're taking it from this nebulous cloud of thought to actual language pen on paper or even typing it, I think is still better than thinking it. And if that's what you want to do, so you're actually going to do it, I think that works. So uh, yeah, yeah, great, great phrase there. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. In fact, even preparing for today, I was writing down my notes and then I rewrote them and, and I thought, and I did, well, I did it. Oh, this is working. This is helping it get into my head. <laughs> I want to stick with this awareness piece because uh, I just think there's, this is everything in sports psychology to me of you're not going to be able to fix anything unless you're aware of it. What are athletes? How let's, let's just actually take it back to a basic. How do you train your athletes in building that awareness muscle? Yeah, it is a muscle, uh, not, not physically, but it does feel like a muscle that can be trained. Um, and I do think that at a coming up through the youth sports levels, it's not anything we talk about. It's not something that coaches really bring up. And so oftentimes my clients will come to me later in the game when they're stuck or injured or slumping, and then they want help. And so we do have to do that backtracking of, well, what are you aware of what's going on? And that awareness is not usually part of the practice. And that that's how it is for everyone. That's just how our American system trains athletes. We're out there playing more games than we are practicing as a five-year-old kid. So developing that awareness really is about stillness. It's a really about finding that time in your day to set a timer for two minutes and just listen to your breathing or just listen to the sounds of the birds going by or the cars or the people in the alley, just taking in your surroundings. That's it. Because you'll come to a feeling, you'll come to that observation of how are you feeling? What's going on with you? And then when those two minutes are up, you can do something about it, right? You can come up with a plan later to say, I need more, whatever it is, uh, nutrition or fresh air or time to myself or practice or friendship or community, whatever, but really coming into just taking a couple of minutes to sit quietly, just taking a couple of minutes to sit quietly, I think can be really key to developing that awareness. Secondly, then recognizing when you're feeling these uncomfortable feelings that might come up, noticing that they pass, noticing that feelings come and feelings go. 
They are waves. Uh, I like to draw that analogy. I have a lot of younger clients who will draw with a crayon or a marker pictures of what this feeling feels like. And a lot of times it comes out like a wave, like an ocean wave. And on the other side of an ocean wave is nice, calm sea. Wow. So that awareness, <laughs> I think, comes with yeah the the thought that this is going to pass. This too shall pass. And what I was gathering a lot from that part of training awareness is you're training yourself to be in the present where it's very difficult to do that nowadays. And I think it's always difficult to do that, but uh, just more so now because we are just bombarded with information that leads us to judgments about the future or about the past and why this is so essential going back to mental blocks we talked a lot about all the fears, right? So many fears of failure, success, injuries, whatever you want to call it. When you think about those fears, it might be stemming from the past, but that fear is about something in the future. And if you can train your ability to be in the present more often than thinking in the future, you're going to have less of that self-doubt that is the foundation of a mental block. So I, I think going back to a mindfulness or meditation practice, how I like to explain it very concisely and clearly to how it's going to make you a better athlete is you're training that ability to be aware of yourself thinking not in the present. You are thinking about something that already happened in the past that you can't change. Again, something about the future that you can't change that you're worried about or you're distracted. So a meditation or awareness practice can build your awareness of when you're thinking ineffectively despite a lot of stressors in a game. But then the other part of that is in a meditation practice, a lot of people are focusing on a sense in the present moment. And when they notice they're distracted, they just come back to the sense. So the second part of what you're doing in that game, that first part is I'm aware of my thoughts getting unproductive, unhelpful. And then that second part is, okay, and now I know how to re-anchor myself into the present. And again, there's very it's a very obvious link to managing a mental block or this self-doubt and lack of confidence when you can drag yourself back into the present. Because at the same time, when you're in the present moment, thinking about what you can do in your situation, you're going to make your future better as a result, even though you're not thinking about it. So there is just so much about that awareness training that I think is really important in helping athletes be in the present more often. I think that's really well said, Gabe. And I'm sure you can give examples from your hockey days as well, when you know your mind may be on the clock and it needs to be on the puck. Yep. Or the, the crowd is an obvious one. And I mean, that's, we'll just go back to my mantra again. That was the only reason I was able to, I did it so many times is because I kept being aware that I was thinking really poorly, that I was clearly thinking about stupid things like, Oh man, what's, what's coach going to think of me if I let in a goal and what's, what's this crowd thinking of me right now? And all, all these irrelevant things that aren't going to help me perform well. So that awareness piece is just integral. And there's, we can we can look at awareness in a micro way of in within a game and what are you thinking of but then i think building awareness about yourself and what you value is an equally important practice that's going to be um done outside of sports and more with conversations like these and values exercises on your own stuff like that so uh definitely a lot of room for awareness training to i think it, again it does go back to a proactive way to manage any mental blocks that might come up yeah, it reminds me of a skater I was working with who was uh, preparing to compete at the world championships. And she was really terrified to perform in front of judges, these particular judges. She had had some trauma in the past and needed to face this fear and was qualified to the world championship. So this major, major event. 
And we had about six months to work together, which is a good amount of time to really lay the base and, and get this practice going. So we concentrated on each day when we would meet about once a week and she would work on it off offline, uh, visualizing herself in the arena in Argentina. Well, we're making it up. We've never been there. So we're imagining what it might look like. So she's creating these scenes in her head and she's putting those judges out there. Now, at the very beginning, when we started visualizing, there were blanks in each of those seats. She was not able to or willing to actually see the faces of the people who had caused this trauma. So she was visualizing there being blank, foggy faces. And every time we would add in a new face and it would take two or three minutes of really visualizing to get that face into focus. And then it's you're, she's exhausted, right? Then she's kind of done with that exercise for that day because it brings on all the emotion of having to face yeah. that fear. And it does physically drain you as well. But little by little by little, every time she faced that fear, every time in her brain that she would perform in front of these judges, she went through that feeling that she was scared of and she came out the other side okay. And every time she built a little bit more confidence, you know, sitting across from me in Zoom, right? In her bedroom. And every time she visualized, she faced those fears, she felt those feelings and like a wave, they came and they went. And eventually she was totally ready. She totally went out there with her head held high and her shoulders back. And she absolutely 100% owned that performance. She got, I can't remember what place she got. It didn't matter, but she placed in the top 10. She, she could have placed last and she would have been excited because she absolutely owned those mental demons. And she got over what was a mental block for her. I love this story because it really paints a picture of how to, how to make that, how to form that new groove in your mind of that new pathway of new thinking. Because I think you mentioned six months working with her once a week and she was doing this on her own outside of the calls. I mean, that is a lot of time, but you can tell, obviously that's going to make a big impact. And it's not, she's not doing this once a month for six months. She's not doing it for a week and then she's stopping because it's not working she stayed with it and that consistency is just not something people can sacrifice if they want to form that new groove that's going to bring with them confidence and uh more present-minded thinking right and you know it i mean it's it's physical fitness takes regular training mental fitness takes regular training exactly let's get to, i have a last question i want to maybe just discuss a little bit and then we'll get to more concrete skills that we've been discussing like this I want to ask about an athlete experiencing a slump or a plateau. So a slump is performing under your potential for a prolonged period of time. And then a plateau, just simplifying how to, how to describe this. This is basically seeing no improvement in your ability and thinking that you're training, but you're not getting better. Now, if, if we take an athlete experiencing either one of these and there's no like physical injury that we can point to, they are getting their reps in there, clearly training and putting in the work just like they've always done. But again, they are either slumping or plateauing. Is it safe to assume that this is a mental block of some kind or just a mental obstacle? I think assumptions are always dangerous, but given what you're describing, it's quite likely that if we can't pinpoint a physical, then the reason is mental. However, I will say that there, there is a fair amount of um, research around what's affecting female athletes 
uh, around their menstrual cycles and around REDS, relative energy deficiency syndrome, that is not easy to pinpoint and coaches are not trained in it and they're not looking for it. And so if a, I will take the gender here and talk about the female athletes just a tiny bit who sometimes are plateauing or sometimes are slumping, and it could be very much related to a caloric deficiency, um, which is affecting their menstrual cycle. And that's something that's that's now becoming a bit more of um, uh, acknowledged and understood in the research. And therefore, there are, there are better physical antidotes to that. Um, but if that's something that you as an athlete suspect might be going on for you, absolutely look up relative energy deficiency syndrome. There's great research out there by Kate Ackerman. Um, and, and you can find out more about that. But if it's more of a mental thing, um, which could be triggered by a physical deficiency, then whether you want to call it a slump or a plateau or an obstacle or this deep groove of a block, we're kind of dealing with the same thing. What I want to make sure is I think a lot of times coaches will say, oh, he's got a lack of motivation. Like he just needs to get more motivated. And I, I hesitate to jump on that bandwagon because nobody's motivated to do poorly. Nobody's motivated to be in a slump, right? So we can't blame it on motivation. Are they talking well, about motivation that. to like work to get out of that slump, that plateau? That's what I hear sometimes. Yeah, he just needs to, you know, pull up his bootstraps and get going. And it's like, well, let's give him a little more credit than that. I, I think they're trying. They're probably working really hard on that same deep groove. And they don't necessarily have those concrete skills to get into another groove. What's What's been your experience there with a slump versus a plateau? Well, I don't, I kind of want to go back to that motivation part of okay. it's interesting if a coach is alluding to basically picking apart an athlete's uh, work ethic and saying they're not motivated enough to work hard to get out of this. You can see how this is going to exacerbate whatever problem that they're going through because the coach is not on their side. They're, they're, they're combative at this point and they're on opposite ends. Now they're, now the athlete has to defend themselves if they are being confronted like this. So uh, that's just an important part that I wanted to get across because we're not going to spend that much time talking about coaches and their relation to their athletes experiencing mental blocks. But um, just to go back to a slump and plateau, I I also relate this to what I, how I talk about inconsistency, where it is just always, okay, not always, most of the time, it's it's caused by something in the mental game that is causing inconsistency. I don't think we can say that a mental block is going to be what causes slumps and plateaus, but I think it's safe to say that it's mental. And this could be a mental block. It could be something really intense, or it could be something a bit more minor. But uh, regardless, this is just another thing that the mental side of performing and competing and training is going to help you get over these obstacles that are in the way of athletes performing consistently near their potential. Agreed. All right, let's talk concrete mental skills that I believe, and I'm sure you believe too, athletes should be training and using in some way, but we are going to contextualize them even more in how they can manage proactively, but also manage in the moment mental blocks. So we've talked about awareness, present-minded thinking, and you had mentioned journaling a little bit. And maybe we can just start there because I think this is a really important exercise for athletes that we can contextualize in a way of understanding themselves and understanding how to get around mental blocks. So maybe you can speak about how you might coach an athlete in general about journaling and then how you would change that or structure it within this episode and what we're talking about. 
So I definitely think it's important for athletes to do some reflective writing. And I also have the majority of my clients who say, I don't like to write. So let's think of it. If you're not physically writing, although the research does say that is helpful, perhaps you would be willing to text it into your phone or send it in a memo, even if it's an audio that you might listen to again later. Um, Again, it's a way of developing awareness and also being able to track your progress. So I love having that tiny little journal in your gym bag or um, having a, a note section in your phone or on your iPad that you can come back to to say, here's what I've done. Here are three great things I've done every day. So that's my number one. I go to, after every practice, write down three things you did well. Track that. It's your piggy bank. This is your mental money that you're earning for yourself. And when you have three great things, three great things, three great things, and then you have a lousy day and the best three things you can come up with are, I got there on time. I didn't say anything nasty to my teammates and uh, I drank enough water, right? This doesn't have to be, I scored a perfect 10 or I ran my PR. We're talking just three things that you can pull out of it. And then you can look back and say, but look at all these other days where I'd, I'd actually had some pretty significant gains. So that's number one, tracking three things you do well each day. That's an easy win. Um, number two, if we're doing really more reflective writing, and we're talking about what's going on, there's a mental block, there's a plateau, there's a slump, then I'm really going to ask the athletes to write down, first of all, what's the issue? Is it a specific skill? Is it a time of day? Is it this coach? What, what is really, can we really get into what is the issue? And that sometimes takes more than one session to get to, right? So when you start thinking about what is really going on here, lots and lots of thoughts will come up and it, you need to kind of let them swirl around Again, those two minutes to yourself at the end of the day, what's going on here? Eventually, something's going to kind of filter out. Something's going to sift through so that you know, what, what's the issue for me? And then number two, what is the outcome I want? Right? I think that's really important because a lot of times we as sports psychology professionals or coaches or parents think we know what the, the athletes want as an outcome. But we don't really, unless we ask them, unless they tell us honestly. So what is the outcome that you really want as an athlete? Is it that you want to do this skill? Is it that you want to qualify for states? Is it that you want to get a scholarship? Is it that you want to be better than your brother? Is it that you don't want to get hurt again, right? There's all kinds of different motivations and outcomes. So first of all, what's the issue? Second of all, what's the outcome I want? And then number three is how I'm showing up getting me closer to that outcome right? That's clutch. That's a hard question to answer sometimes. Because sometimes it is the work ethic. And that's hard to admit. Mm -hmm. But it's not always, right? There are lots of other reasons. So is how I'm showing up getting me there? Okay, then how am I feeling about this? Am I feeling motivated? Am I feeling depressed? Am I feeling anxious? How am I feeling about this? And what do I need when I'm feeling this way? Right. So we could spend a whole session going through those questions and then you kind of come up with, all right, now it feels a little bit more concrete. Now I can make a little bit more of an action plan. And that gives the athlete control. Then you feel like, OK, now I know how to work out of this groove. Exactly. And with that control comes confidence, because when you are thinking about something that you can't control and you don't have a plan, anxiety and self-doubt. And this is exactly so it's just you made that so clear on how building that awareness about 
what you want, what you need to do is going to feed into that mental money that you described, which is funny. I use the exact same concept when I talk about confidence. Like, how are you depositing um, confidence coins in your little piggy bank of of a mental of your mental game every day? And I think journaling is a great way to do that because it's pretty easy. It's pretty. It's not not that difficult. And it's there's just so much research that can really speak about how strong it is. What about? Okay, I want to. It's funny because I'm going to play devil's advocate here, even though I, 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 I do this. I do this myself. I do this with my athletes of when you, so part of my system is good, better, how, what did I do well today? What do I want to be better in? How can I do it? But focusing on that good section, mm. I want to ch- like, just maybe discuss of when you think you might be being too, like, can you be too kind to yourself when you're describing like, man, I had a really, like, that was one of my worst days that I've had in a while. And can the act of still rewarding yourself, like by patting yourself on the back, by saying, well, I did this well. And it's it's just very minimal. Like it's kind of like, a, I don't want this to be my standard. I, I'm better than this, than rewarding myself for that. Is this something that you think athletes can and should recoil from? Or is this an ineffective mindset that is actually going to keep them, hold them back? Here's what I think about that game. I, I like how you phrase that. Can you be too kind to yourself? I mean, just listen to that question. Can you be too kind to yourself? Well, I guess it's it's in the phrase. <laughs> it's it's about yeah. complacency. That's that's the that's the worry. Right, right. And I think that that vocabulary distinction is important. And so, what I'm asking an athlete to do in developing the process of going through and finding three positive things is to catch themselves being good. And if sometimes they also catch themselves on an off day, we're still developing that awareness. So even though it's really minimal and you don't need a pat on the back for showing up on time and drinking enough water, you went through the exercise of being self-aware. You took those two minutes to think about what went well. And in thinking about what went well, you didn't get wrapped up in what went poorly. Because really, even though we do want to talk about what can I do better and how do I do that? The first thing is what went well? Because essentially you want to do more of that, right? So you have to first be aware of what went well in order to be able to add to that or tweak it or use that going forward. So I don't think it leads to complacency when when you're pulling out these small wins. I think it leads to an awareness. And and it's easier to just kind of let go of the crummy days because there are going to be those crummy days. So instead of getting circled around in those swirling thoughts and not being able to get out of your head, you regularly practice getting out of your head. There's no question that the mind defaults to negativity because it's just that's how the brain is wired for survival of just being aware of any threats and a threat in this day and age could be I'm not high enough on the depth chart. So that how the brain is wired to think about negatives when you're not trying to control it, coupled with the optimistic happy athlete is going to perform better than the pessimistic negative thinking athlete, I think makes a lot of sense in helping people basically prime their brain to think optimistically. We're not talking about toxic positivity where you're going to lead to complacency. You're thinking about how can I just be an optimistic athlete that's thinking constructively positively. So I think uh, Brad Donahue was on the podcast recently and he described it as thinking objectively with a positive bent. And I just love that phrasing because it really takes away any opportunity to think about this toxic positivity, it's not everything. We're still going to be holding yourself to a good standard, but you're understanding that having good thoughts in your brain is going to lead to you being better. And in addition to that, you are more likely to take feedback and 
understand and have confidence to train what you need to train if you have some optimism in your mind. So I'm I'm glad I asked that because I think we got to a lot of a lot of good nuggets about um, being aware with a positive mindset. All right, let's talk about routines. You can take this anywhere you want. I always imagine them as pregame routines, mid-game, and post-game routines. Maybe we don't talk about post-game because we are definitely doing that with journaling. How do you uh, find routines playing into managing mental blocks? Routines have always been a big part of what I teach athletes, and they're a part of what I did as a gymnast as well. And I didn't have the term for it then that I do now with a pregame routine or a prep routine or a pre-shot routine. Uh, mine was specifically, I have three parts is what I teach athletes now. So I have a, a movement, I would shake out my hands and then a deep breath, whether you need a relaxing belly breath or you need an energizing chest breath and then a positive thought or visualization. So maybe it's that mantra that we said earlier, I own this beam or it's picturing yourself nailing that perfect dismount or one particular part of your game. So three parts. Um, that has always been really important to me. And I find that when athletes start their game or start their shot or start their um, event with that, it backs the nerves up to before they get out on the ice or before they get up on the beam. It, it acts like a mental eraser, right? So they can use that prep routine to channel those nerves into positive energy to really drive that performance and to squeeze out any negativity or doubt or thoughts of could have, should have, would have, or the crowd or the um, scouts who are here or all those swirling thoughts, the homework you still have to do, the fact that you lost the last game, the mistake you made, blah, 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 blah. And you come down to this prep routine and all of a sudden you're now in the zone. Now you're in that tunnel where your blinders are on. You're much more focused. You have a positive thought in mind. You've shaken out the jitters and you've gotten your energy level activated to the right degree for you with your breath, now you're set to perform. And that, when you do that over and over again, will help prevent a mental block because you have this tool that you know how to use and you've been practicing it. And if you haven't been practicing it, then start it now. It's a three-part routine. It's really quick and easy. And you just practice it and you do it and you figure out what's the mantra I want to use What's the movement that makes me feel relaxed? Do I feel really hyped up and I need to take a relaxing breath? Or do I feel a little sluggish and I need to take an energizing breath? Another note on routines, and I love how you described all that. Um, another note is, one, it doesn't have to be the exact same every single time. I think it should be relatively similar, but sometimes you might be pressed for time. It's still worth doing if you need to just kind of streamline it in that way. Or you feel like you are not getting to your peak mindsets yet, and you need to extend the routine. But another note that I love about the routines, especially pregame routines, but I think it works for the mid one mid game routines as well, is it bolsters your sense of familiarity. Because if you're doing this routine all the time in practices, you're doing it all the time at home games where you're more comfortable, and then you're taking it on the road, it's going to feel more like a home game, or it's going to feel more like a practice. And what that's doing is going back to the stress response is it's managing that excessive stress that leads to overthinking and self-doubt. And we've been, just been coming back to this uh, the whole time of how these mental skills acknowledge and attack that self-doubt and bolster up the confidence. So I, I just feel so passionately about routines and, and adding on to what you said about kind of tr trying things out, maybe trying out different mantras. I think that's a really important piece for people to understand that 
if they like to, if they're going to try a routine, they're like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to actually add some structure to my routine and try these three things. This is not something that you should set in stone. This is something that you should just kind of be aware of. How did it feel? And do it a couple times, get, get some good data. And then if one of those things, like the breath felt awesome, but you were not vibing with your mantra, change it up. There's no reason to, to keep everything the same. And uh, just going back to journaling, what a great way to keep track of what's working, what you want to change. So well said about the routines. And I like the, um, also, I want to speak about having a physical piece in addition to that mental piece. The mantra is obvious. It's going to get the mind focused more effectively. And the breath is a great way to stay present and uh, control that stress response. But the physical part is one way to trigger a routine, whereas maybe you forget about it, but your water bottle is always right next to you on the bench. So it reminds you like, yeah, I always do my routine after I squeeze the water bottle hard. It also lights up and activates more of the brain, which is going to have a bigger impact on the effects that you're trying to get for your mental game. So it's important to include a physical piece. And I also, lastly, make it fun, make it something that feels fun or cool to you that you can enjoy doing. And this could just be a uh, one way to inch even closer to feeling more confident. And um, I think it's, it, this is one of the few areas of mental skills training that I think can be really fun and kind of like exciting to kind of play with. And cause it's kind of on display uh, for at least the physical piece. So anything else to add to routines? I, I like what you've said there. I think, you know, we all think about uh, Rafa Nadal, the tennis player who lines up his water bottles and drinks them in the same order. Uh, and he's, he is quite regular about it and quite persnickety about how it all goes. And that's really important for him because if his physical world is in order, then he can let, relax his brain. And when his brain is relaxed, he can play at a higher level. So fussing around with the water bottles may seem sort of frivolous to some of us, but there is a real reason behind it. That is him putting things in order so that he can relax and play at a higher level. Yeah, I love, I remember I saw a clip of his routine uh, in grad school and I was just like, this is, this is so cool. Like, I I, th I think a lot, I don't know, I wonder if more people think that this is like weird and maybe indication of something like mentally wrong with him. And then there's other people that think it's so cool to have something, to have so much confidence in a set routine and be so diligent in executing it the same way every time. Right. And I think the other, when you say that some, some people do think it's weird and I have had athletes say to me, like, what can I do that other people won't notice because they don't want to think they're weird or you don't want to give away what you're doing to the opposition. So, um, you know, just stretching, right? Like you're stretching your calves or you're stretching, you're rolling your neck or you're cracking your knuckles or you're stretching your wrists, whatever. Nobody's going to think anything weird of that. If you're doing it with intention, that's what makes it magical for you. Absolutely. Let's talk a bit more about imagery. We alluded to it a good amount beforehand and how you were coaching your client and helping them form that new groove. But let's talk more specifics of the important parts of what to do when you're practicing imagery. So let me start off and ask you for your take on, and maybe you can allude to the same client of first person versus third person. So are you coaching athletes to imagine these experiences like there's a GoPro on their forehead in the first person? Or is it more like they're watching film of themselves in the third person? I think there are important uses for both. And each of us naturally has a bent toward one or the other. So there's no wrong answer is what I'm saying. I think first person, uh, you know, from within your own eyes, from the GoPro perspective is useful really for getting the feel of a skill. So maybe if you're afraid to 
go back after an injury, you really want to feel what it's going to be like to, to visualize from the inside. Versus if you're visualizing um, more of a technical aspect or the, the whole field or the whole ice, that's where you really want to zoom out to that third person perspective, that external perspective, so that you can see all the way everything is working. So I think there are uses to both. Um, one is easier than the other usually. So I usually ask people to do the one that's not as easy. Oh, really? It makes them train. <laughs> yep. Again, it kind of comes back to that awareness. It comes back to exercising that muscle, to getting you out of one groove and into another groove. So I would encourage you to try visualization at all, period. Get it going because it's super powerful. And if you're already pretty good at it, then I would try to see it from another perspective. Would you say, so this is how I describe it, and I will solicit any pushback that you may have. Um, I like to use first person for emotional management because when you're in the first person, it's more like you're feeling the emotions of it where you're really in there. And then third person, I usually steer athletes toward it when they're trying to learn a new skill or be better in their form, for example. Uh, does that make sense? That totally does make sense. That totally does make sense. I, I also use imagery with athletes who are, experiencing mental blocks in using the imagery to block out distracting thoughts or to block out the negative thoughts. So I'm remembering back to a baseball catcher who was having trouble throwing to first. This is a very experienced catcher. Not again, this is exactly what a mental block is. Your lack of confidence in something you used to be really good at. And that used to be, you're still good at, but you're in the wrong groove. So this athlete ended up, we visualized pulling down a window shade on those negative thoughts. And so his specific um, thought was what was watching the ball flying past the first baseman. So that we kept pulling down the window shade because anytime he visualized, that's what he saw. He couldn't yet get out of that groove and get into the next groove. So we just had to block it. So he came around to pulling down the window shade. I've had other athletes hold up a stop sign or a shield or uh, a mental lockbox. They picture a safe. Some One of my athletes just a couple of weeks ago was like, I put my negative thoughts in the safe and changed the combination. I love that. Yeah, it's very individual, but visualization is huge because it activates the same neural pathways as physical practice. So if you're visualizing yourself making a great shot, or if you're visualizing yourself nailing your dismount, that's strengthening the same muscle memory as when you actually do it. And to put it simply, what you think about, you're probably going to get more of. So if you keep thinking about what you're afraid of, your mind is more geared toward making that happen, which is, uh, I think it's, it acknowledges the self-fulfilling prophecy, which is such an interesting concept that I definitely want to break down in more detail on another episode. But um, what a, what a great talk on imagery. Let's, let's, Let's talk about the senses, though, with visual with visualizing. So what a stupid word for this mental skill. I just can't get over it. Imagery and visualization are so focused on the sight, the sense of what you see. But that's not all what we should be imagining as far as our senses go in these experiences. Am I right? Absolutely. I think mental rehearsal is a better phrase because it leaves it open for the sounds, the smells, the tastes. You're, you're tasting perspiration or you're tasting the gum you're chewing or you're smelling the rink or you're smelling the chalk or you're smelling the grass you're, you're hearing the music or you're hearing the crowd there is so much more to it than just what you see so i like to think of it as mental rehearsal and you get to be the set designer on that stage where you really put the lighting and you put the colors and you put the scene and you put the music and you put the the sounds in the background and the audience in exactly as you want it to be and then you rehearse 
Well said. Well said. Do you coach the your athletes in all of the senses? Because I usually am just like, let's not even think about smell and taste for now because that can be less tangible. I usually just go towards visual, what you can feel, and then what you can hear. Yeah, those are the main ones. I think a lot of times I will mention the others because I want it to be fully sensory because the more accurate you make it in your mind, the more convincing it is to your brain. Yeah. Right? Your brain has done this a thousand times before in my head, okay, then I can do it for real on the ice or on the beam or on the floor. But if it's just kind of vague and it's not that accurate and it's sort of too slow or too fast, or it's not in real time, or it's only in black and white, or you see yourself doing it in a cloud, but not really on the pitch, it's not very convincing. So sometimes I throw in those other things like, what does it smell like? Or what do you taste when you're really scared? You know, you, you taste fear, you taste that dry mouth. That's part of it. And it's also very easy to link it back to that groove that you're trying to build in your mind. That new groove is not an easy thing to do. And adding more senses makes the imagery experience more real to the brain. And look at that. It's more effective in forming that new groove with each time you do this imagery exercise. So what an awesome skill. Um, Do you usually just coach athletes and doing it beforehand and kind of on their own at home? Or is this, I, I think it's great to do right before games. I think having imagery as part of a pre-game routine is is essential. But is there room for it in the middle of a game when you maybe have a break and you're not like you're not in the middle of play, but maybe it's in between routines in, in gymnastics or in, in between shifts in hockey. Uh, is that something you coach athletes in? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's, it's quick and it's easy and nobody knows you're doing it. Right. So if you're, if you're scared of looking weird, then all you have to do is just kind of gaze down at the floor or at the grass or at the beam, whatever you're off in the corner doing your own thing. And you can do it with eyes open. It, it, it's, totally. I think it's more impactful with eyes closed, but you can absolutely do it with your eyes open. You can. You can do it with your eyes open. And as you get good at it, you can do it when you're having a conversation with someone. You're a little distracted, but you can see yourself going through your game, your routine. So, yeah, I think there's if we can do it frequently enough outside of competition such that it is very easy for us to sort of fall into that groove during competition then if you're seeing yourself in the middle of two halves t- doing what you want to be doing, you're more much more likely to get that. It's just what you said. If you see it, you're more likely to get it. We can get a lot into breathing and how this might improve an athlete's mental game and proactively manage and also in the moment manage mental blocks. Where, where do you go that are like the essential facts and ways to practice the skill of breathing and use it uh, in this context? The quick, easy, easy, but effective breathing techniques I try to teach are an energizing breath, which is high up and quicker in your chest and a relaxing breath, which is low and slow in your belly. You'll see box breathing online. You'll see four, five, six breathing online. There's many different techniques, but basically we're trying to regulate our energy level using the breath. So you develop that awareness. You recognize, am I feeling too amped up? Am I feeling too low down. What do I need to do to get me to my optimal energy level? Some players play really well, absolutely hyped. And some players come in and they look like they just got out of bed and that is their zone. So they need to know what, what do they need to get to their optimal level? Again, journaling, tracking, seeing what's working, what's working well, what happened? What are those three good things? Oh, turns out I was taking a lot of low, slow, deep breaths. So the very basics of breathing that I teach are that energizing breath, 
or that low relaxing breath. And just to add on to how it really can drive your the energy system in your body is it has a direct link to your autonomic nervous system, which drives heart rate and among other things. But that's a really big one of um, how it uh, can the energetic breath that you spoke of can increase heart rate and literally make you feel like you have more energy because of its effect on the nervous system. And likewise, the diaphragmatic slow belly breath is going to activate the part of the nervous system that calms us down. So breathing can just be incorporated in so many ways and it's so covertly, nobody has to know that you're doing it in a certain way. So I think it's just a a very versatile skill. Exactly. And I'm also, you know, if you're a captain of a team and you've got your pregame moment, take your teammates through breathing. That is such an easy win. Do one of each so that they know, and then they can, you can just say, all right, this is your time to breathe. And they are knowing I need to take an energizing breath or I need to take a calming breath. It's a great win. I want to talk about how other people can be involved for these athletes. But before we get to there, is there any other mental skill or skills that you can think of that you feel like is worth touching on? I think it's important just to really choose your self-talk wisely. I think the intentionality around what you're telling yourself is the important part. So if you are letting your thoughts run, you're going to get more of whatever you're thinking. And if what you're thinking is cyclical and you're kind of stuck in that rabbit hole of negative thoughts or self-doubt, then you're going to get your performance diminish. So being really intentional about choosing thoughts that feed the part of you that you want to grow. And it's as easy as sort of thinking about like, what would you tell a friend, right? Would, would you tell a friend like, oh, you suck and you can't do this or you, you stink and you can't do this and you're the worst one on the team and nobody cares what you do and you're a lousy teammate. Would you say that to a friend? Then why would you say it to yourself, right? So be really intentional about what you're choosing to feed yourself. In addition to that, when you say intention, I think of it as you're you're using the prefrontal cortex when you're doing that. If you have the intention because you're not letting just the brain run automatically and just doing that, just having that intention is going to manage the emotional turmoil that the brain might find itself in. So, I like that you yeah that you use that phrase that's uh just really essential for the self-talk and um that really just goes back to how you develop your mantra and your talk track so that general narrative that you keep finding yourself in within your mind. I like that phrase, Gabe, talk track. That's a good one. So how can other people help out an athlete? Maybe they're experiencing a mental block. Maybe they're just suffering on the mental side of sports. Uh, where, where do you come in and help these coaches and teammates, loved ones, parents uh, to, to support these athletes? First, uh, get them to a mental performance coach, get them to a sports psychology consultant, get them to a mental health professional, depending on what what help they need, whether it's really clinical based or skill support based. Number one, that takes the onus off you as a parent or a coach or a teammate or a brother or a sister, um, because that's not really your role. And you want to be able to be supportive and loving and caring in the way that you are an expert and not in the way that sports psychology professionals are an expert. So number one takes the onus off you. Number two, when that athlete knows that they have support, that alone increases their mental well-being. Right? I was literally just working with a, a gymnast from New Zealand who was experiencing a mental block on a particular skill, a very easy skill. 
um, off uh, her dismount off bars. And it was much easier, you know, she could do a double layout and she was experiencing a mental block on doing a single layout. And she came to me. And after the second session, when I met with her, I said, how are you doing? And, you know, you don't expect a whole lot of change after one session because we're really just getting to know each other. And she was like, oh, I feel so much better just knowing that you're on my team. Right. So having that support, that alone can be really helpful. And then I would say as a parent, really trying to step back, even though often our instinct is to step in, that stepping in, trying to help, trying to do something, trying to fix it is really um, taking away the athlete's opportunity to build resilience and figure out the strategies that they need. And it also puts more pressure on them and makes the problem more obvious. So as a parent myself, I would say that's hard to do, but I would totally recommend that if there's a loved one listening to this, stepping back can be more helpful than stepping in and recognizing this takes time. These are waves. They do come and they do go. So getting the athletes the help they need and then stepping back. And if anything, you're giving them focus that's positive. You're talking about the things that went well that day. You're asking them, what are three things you did well today? Um, what was fun about practice today? Um, did you see that great performance on film today? You know, they can rewatch things that they've done well in the past or things that other people have done well. That can be kind of fun and motivating. Again, we're just trying to take that pressure off. And it's difficult when, like I, I've had a couple kids now that I've worked with where their parents are passionate about getting their kids to reach their potential, right? But that passion is driving the pressure cooker even hotter for these kids. Yeah. And it's, and I mean, you, you said it yourself that it can be very difficult and I'm, I'm can't, I can imagine that it would be. And, um, but it's having that awareness of is my impact on my kid taking pressure off their shoulders or is it adding more weight and that, yeah, I mean, like, just like some of the other, other practices that we've discussed, that can be kind of a harsh reality, but can also be relieving and empowering once you do come to that conclusion. And I really liked what you said about, I mean, I think it's obvious that obviously us two are going to be like, yep, get them working with a sports psychologist or mental performance coach. I mean, it's why we're in this because it does work. But I really like how you talked about and touched on this idea of you're helping either the parent or the coach or the friend stick with their hat. They're not going to be wearing too many hats because when somebody tries to do too many roles, not only is role confusion going to damage that relationship and your quality of how much you can help them, but it's going to make you better at your own role. So now they don't have to worry about, I want to go to my parents and friends for support, but they have the coach hat on all the time. And I don't feel like I have that anymore. So really, really great three points that you made there. Those are awesome. Yeah, I think that, I think that's often the the part that you know parents we, we are the experts right we went to school for this this is our life we do this all the time so we have a lot of experience we have a lot of research we've read the books we've curated this so we know the tools that work and parents well-meaning parents are going to spend hours and hours and hours and days looking online and combing through other people's blogs and newsletters to try to find the tidbit of information that you know we have at our fingertips because this is the life we lead so letting them live, live in their hat, use their hat the best they can. I, I, I like, I really appreciate what you said there is let the kids be your kids. You be their parent. You just be their friend so that they can then go and come to you when they need you for support, for love, for, you know, a brownie, for a cuddle, for 
a punch on the shoulder that's gentle and sort of like, you got this. I know it's tough right now, but you've got this. Tiffany, this has been such a fun conversation. I don't think I've spoken with someone on the podcast that I've I, I've had in my mind what I was going to say and you spoke it for me. And so this is a lot of fun of like, okay, yep, I don't need to touch on that anymore. Um, so thank you for joining. Please let any listeners know where they can connect with you and any like products that you have out there that you want to share. I am uh, at mindovermotion.com. That's my website. I am reticent to be on social media because I don't want to add to the noise, but I am on the web at mindovermotion.com. So if you want to reach out to me there, uh, you can schedule a complimentary discovery call and we can work together individually. Or I also work with teams and do workshops. And, the, and you can also buy my book there, Golfing With Your Eyes Closed. Perfect. Tiffany, thank you again for coming on. I think people are going to get a lot out of this. All right. Great. Thanks so much, Gabe. I appreciate doing this with you. Stay up to date with the podcast by following the Sports Psychology Of on your podcast platform and see short highlights from every episode on Instagram. If you want to start working on your mental game, try out one-on-one sports psychology coaching with me by visiting my website, zelicoperformance.com, and schedule a free intro call where we'll discuss your goals, obstacles to success, and determine if we'd be a good fit to move forward. You can also email me directly at gabriel at zelicoperformance.com regarding private coaching or the podcast. Links to social media, my website, and email are all in the description. Thank you for listening.